and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? Is that in the spec? Should it be in the spec? I think it's, I think it's in the spec. Let's ask the protocol committee. All right. Before we get to our relevant guests for that, I think, mildly relevant intro, I want to introduce the other panelists. So besides me, Richard Littauer, hello, everyone. We have Alyssa Wright. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Justin Dorfman. Hello, everyone. Uh, Eric, Eric Berry. Hello, everyone. All right. Oh, this okay. is going to be a weird podcast. It's Friday afternoon and we're yeah. all excited. Our guest today is Jordan Harvin. Jordan, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. How are you? Doing excellent. It's so good to have you on this podcast. Jordan is a longtime open source enthusiast, maintainer, coder, whatever you want to call him. He's calling in today from San Francisco. He works for Coinbase at the moment, but that is merely the current step on a long and really illustrious career. He's been a TC39 delegate for a long time. TC39 is the decisions body that helps figure out how JavaScript is going to move and grow. He was the editor of specification from 2018 to 2021, and he's been heavily involved with Node for years and inherited and maintains a ton of open source projects. Jordan, how did you get started with Node? It sort of predates that. So originally, of course, I didn't maintain anything. And it turns out that if you file a lot of bugs and pull requests on projects, a lot of maintainers will just kind of hand you the keys and say, hey, no, you do it. I'm, I'm, I'm busy. And so that is how I've taken over a lot of the projects that I didn't create myself. And two of those projects were the ES5 shim and ES6 shim, which at the time were the primary way that developers polyfilled or shimmed their applications to have modern JavaScript functionality, even in older browsers. So like if you wanted array map in IE6, you could either pull in a function like Lodash or something, or you could use ES5 shim and then just happily dot map on all your arrays and pretend that IE6 wasn't there in some ways. In order to maintain those projects effectively, I had to start learning the specification and reading you know, the mailing list that TC39 used. And as a result, I, you know, I'm skipping a few steps here, but I ended up wanting to polyfill more things that were newer than ES5 and ES6. And by the time that that decision rolled around, Node and NPM had become a lot more commonplace as the standard way to distribute JavaScript. And so that was really where I started to dig more deeply into Node. I started to try to create these polyfill packages and maintain them and test them on different Node versions. That led to me using NVM, and which ultimately led to me maintaining that. So I think that's the sort of the slightly longer story of how I got into Node, was basically maintaining these packages so that developers could polyfill or, or shim their applications. You know, I am on GitHub a lot during a day, and I've never seen so many organizations an individual has been, you know, that is a part of. How do you maintain all of those notifications? I mean, you've got Babel, you've got TC39, you've got Coinbase, three different JS organizations, Babel. It's just like, how do you deal with it? That is a very good question. It is certainly a lot of notifications. I keep GitHub's notification page open in a browser tab on every device I own. So my iPhone, my iPad, my personal and my work laptop. I try to treat 
those notifications in an asynchronous manner so that I'm not like, I don't have any push notifications set up for those things. So it's not bothering me when I'm doing something else, whether that's doing other coding or other work or whether that's spending time with family or friends, right? It, it doesn't intrude on my life at all. But in the same way as folks might take five or 10 minutes to meditate or take a hike or I don't know, do some yoga or something, I take a breath and I check, go through some GitHub notifications. And when I'm on a more mobile device, like the, the iPhone is very small, I don't type a lot on it or I try not to. So on a device like the iPhone, I tend to select the notifications that are more about reading than responding or triaging. And when I'm on the iPad, I'll do a little more organization, maybe doing some replies and adding labels. And then I save notifications that require it for when I'm on the computer and I can actually write code. By choice, it's kind of taken over my hobbies. A decade and a half ago, I played video games a lot. I competed with my friends to see who could have the highest Xbox Live Gamer score. And some of my friends work at video game companies, so it was a, a challenge. I skied all the time. I, I went out and partied a lot more. And certainly growing older and, and having a family has taken a dent in many of those things. But also, I tend to prefer spending time with open source to playing games, even though I still enjoy playing video games and doing all those other things. So it's kind of just is my hobbies at this point. Totally. I mean, it's a special breed. Like I compare you kind of to like Sindre in a way where he's got so many different projects that he's working on. And what's really cool is I see you have over 30 sponsors. So does that play a part in you having that passion to be checking notifications? Because for me personally, whether I was I had sponsors or not, I would just be overwhelmed. So I just want to get in the mind of how you deal with that not being overwhelmed and do the sponsors play a part in you being successful at it? Sponsorship as a concept in open source, I think is relatively new. Historically, it was more of a patronage model where your employer would pay you to work on something or a company would hire you in order to make sure that you were still able to work on something. None of the parts of my career have been specifically for my open source projects. Certainly, my open source projects may have been part of the reason someone hired me, but nobody has hired me to work on an open source project or paid me for that reason. So historically, that's not the source of my motivation. I'm fortunate enough to be a software engineer in the San Francisco Bay Area, which is not an underpaid profession. And it is an expensive place to live, but the, nonetheless, I'm fortunate enough to be able to have the free time to work on open source and to not need to make money off it in order to live. So I've been able to sort of develop an intrinsic motivation for devoting the time and energy to these things. The rise of sponsorship models, Tidelift, Open Collective, GitHub sponsors, et cetera, what that does to me is it's a demonstration of interest and appreciation in a way that is more concrete than someone clicking a GitHub emoji, giving me kind of invisible internet points. It's something concrete. So that matters a lot. When you're on the internet, you deal with people of varying personalities. And all of us are people of varying personalities, depending on the day, the hour, what's going on in our personal lives. And so it's not always a frictionless interaction. This is a huge understatement. So in order to preserve my enjoyment, it's nice to find ways to validate what I'm doing, even when somebody is hostile or annoying or makes me feel bad for whatever reason. And there's lots of ways to be validated. You could look at GitHub stars or download counts, or you could wait for a tweet, or you could just be like, hey, people know my name. That feels good, right? Those are all nice. The 
ability of someone to contribute even a dollar, $5 a month is a concrete gesture that for the majority of people is actually really significant. There's that whole concept of how when a very wealthy person will donate a large amount of money to a charitable cause, and then a number of people point out that in terms of the percentage of their net worth, it's actually like you giving $3. And it's still meaningful because it's $300 million, but it's much more significant, I think, when an individual gives $60 a year, which is like my lowest tier on GitHub sponsors is $5. So if somebody's paying $60 a year, for most people, that's something. That's significant. And that validates me a lot, even though the $60, it's not the difference for me between paying my electricity bill or not, because I'm a fully employed software engineer. So it's not about the money. It's about the gesture. So that's interesting. So with more code that you touch, the more vulnerable you are to trolls and just a-holes. So that's kind of cool. So that is basically saying, hey, people actually really care what I'm doing. So that kind of criticism kind of bounces off me because I have 30 plus people that are telling me with their wallets, hey, what you're doing is pretty freaking awesome. Exactly. And then of course, the other wrinkle is I am nowhere near close enough in terms of revenue stream from sponsorships to be able to consider quitting a job and working full-time on open source. The place that I live and the lifestyle that I want for me and my family does not allow that at the moment. It is absolutely conceivable that could change if enough folks and companies in particular who are making money off of open source software make the decision to contribute to the ecosystem. And that would be the point where it becomes life-changing for me. It's not life-changing, as I said, in the sense of paying my bills or not, but it would be life-changing in the sense that I would be able to consider, I love my job, but do I love my job more than I would love working full-time on open source? And I don't actually know the answer to that question because I've never been in a position to actually try it out and see if I would like it better. And, and again, I mean, I do love my job and I've continued, I have loved my jobs, although my previous ones. So I don't regret being in them and I don't regret being in the one I'm in now. And if somebody came along and like offered me a sponsorship that was the equivalent of my salary and whatnot, that does not mean I would quit and do it. But nonetheless, it would be very empowering and freeing and validating to have that as an option. I'm really intrigued by this conversation. One of the things that's interesting to me is that you're talking about how it's a hobby for you. It's something you do on top of your normal job. It's not your main thing, which is, I think it is for most open source developers, almost 0% rounding down, get to do this for a living. I'm thinking back to Daniel Pink, who wrote, he's a neuroscientist and he has this, uh, he wrote this book called Drive, talking about what meaning is in work. And he has these three core values of what's meaningful work, right? Autonomy, mastery, and purpose. So you have the mastery aspect down. You're putting in the 10,000 hours. You're working on that because you do that, you said, in your free time, like meditating, learn for a walk, I check my GitHub notifications. And you have autonomy because open source allows you to choose what projects you're working on. No one's forcing you to do this. It's one of the great things about open source is that generally you're able to choose which projects. And again, as you said, if you hang around long enough, people give you the keys and then you're in charge of the project in some way. But I'm curious about the last one, purpose. How do you choose which open source projects to invest in? And how do you feel they're actually giving you value because you're making something that's meaningful to you? Some of the projects that I create are to fulfill a demonstrated need. In other words, I have a problem that I need to solve in an application. I can build a package that solves it. 
I will publish that package. And if it solves that for other people, many people might start using it. In those cases, the purpose is sort of, I, I think it's similar to the, uh, the same itch that I believe many uh, programmers feel, which is I want to solve problems. I want to go build a thing and fix yeah. a thing and make a thing happen. Some of the packages that I create, the need is less urgent. For example, I have a package that polyfills function.prototype.name in Internet Explorer 6 through 9. I would probably describe the need for it as relatively small. It's not zero, but it's not that large. But it serves as checking a box in a list of the ES Shims ecosystem. Like it's completing the list of things that it would need to be a complete solution. And that feels good. And that's sort of that scratching an itch. I think that as long as a project I make is used by a lot of people or completing a, I'm using the word package, but in the conceptual sense, not in the NPM sense, completing a bag of solutions or solving a problem that I have somewhere else, then that feels like a sufficient justification for working on those projects. If I have a project that's none of those things, which I probably do have a few, then it's more kind of a fun toy. But then the other answer that popped into my head to your original question is, I subscribe pretty strongly to the small package philosophy that things should do one thing well. And so as such, I have a lot of small packages and I use a lot of small ones. The downside of that approach is there's more stuff to maintain. For example, instead of one repository, I have a hundred and it could live in one repo, but I have it in a hundred separate ones. And it's a hundred separate packages to install instead of one. So there is a trade-off there. But the upside is that 98 of those packages need three minutes of maintenance every five years. So the maintenance cost is low when those things are separated. Or more correctly, it is the maintenance cost is delegated appropriately to the individual packages, which means the ones that take a lot of time are the ones that I have to pay a lot of attention to. And most of them, I don't really have to. Will IE6 ever die? At this point, I have a feeling that IE6 is dead. At this point, the thing that most convincingly kills old browsers has been the SSL vulnerabilities in the older Internet Explorer versions, such that you can't even access most websites from them anymore. So there's like no point supporting that. But I think there's a lot of engineers that are frustrated supporting old environments, old node versions or old browsers. And it sort of violates a sense of aesthetics to have to deal with that messiness. But the way I prefer to look at it is there are human beings using these things. If they're not updating to a later version of Node or or their browser, it's probably because they can't. Either they lack the knowledge or they lack the equipment or they lack the permissions because it's like a computer lab in a school or something. And whenever people talk about dropping browser support, they talk about percentages. But 0.01% of internet users is like the population of this country or something like that. I don't know. I I haven't done the math. I probably am off by a factor of 10 or 100 or something. But it's still a significant number of human beings. And I think it's a very different conversation whenever these are framed in terms of how many human beings do you want to exclude from your software or your website versus the engineering cost of including them. You may still make the choice to exclude them. That is reasonable, right? You can't solve every problem for everybody, but it frames the conversation much more differently and more productively, in my opinion, when you talk about people instead of percentages. So I like the idea of talking about people And I like that your GitHub profile has this whole line in it right in the first paragraph. I like finding ways 
to balance what I feel are ethical obligations to all users of projects I interact with. And you just spoke to this when you talked about users of old browsers. They're all users. And I want to focus on the word ethical. I searched through your user on GitHub. 135 of your repos have the phrase or the string MIT, which probably means that 135 of your repos are MIT licensed out of 195. Don't know what's going on with the other ones. It happens. We all use GPL sometimes. Oh, well. MIT has a section in it that says the software is provided as is and that you are not liable for anything that happens if they use. That's a very important part of the MIT license. What are you talking about when you talk about ethical obligations to all users when your code is licensed in a way that says you have no ethical obligations to anyone de facto because you've licensed it that way? Yes, the majority of my projects are MIT licensed. The ones that aren't are either forks, something I didn't create, or I think that's probably just the end of it. Cool. <laughs> I think that ethics is a complicated subject that many people have studied far more than I have, because I've virtually not studied it at all. And I don't pretend to be an expert on the subject. But I think that when I'm making a package whose job is to tell you if a value is a function or not, <laughs> or if something, yeah, some single purpose package, my ethical obligation is not, are you using that to determine if you should call a function that like reveals someone's private information? That's none of my concern. There is a balance between a tool's primary purpose and how a tool can be misused. And as long as the primary purpose of my tool is, quote, good for some value of good, and as long as the potential damage from misuse is sufficiently mitigated, then the balance there is sort of, I kind of have to just let it go at that point. And I can't impose my values on the world. To segue real quick, whenever someone asks me in like an online chat area, they ask me to solve a problem in a weird way or how to solve a problem in a weird way. The analogy I like to use is if you ask me how to cut down a tree with a screwdriver, I'm not going to tell you the best way to do that. I'm going to give you an ax or a chainsaw or something. In the same way, if you're trying to use my tool for something wildly inappropriate that is just not the best fit for it, I don't really have to worry about that. So I think that's a really good answer to the question of how do you deal with ethics and open source and what is ethical source and how do you ethically license your stuff? That wasn't where I was going, although it's a really interesting topic and I'm glad you touched on it. I'm curious about what you think the ethical obligations are of the maintainer who has a package and how do you weigh that against your personal work-life balance and the fact that you are your own person who wants to do your own things? How do you deal with people who say, I need you to fix this now. And you're like, I'm sorry, I'm ethically obligated to do whatever I want to do. And this MIT license, so I don't have to, but I'm going to anyway, because I am so nice. How does that conversation play out in your head? Well, there's a lot of stuff that we're all allowed to do. That's still a dick move. That's still a <laughs> being a jerk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the fact that you're allowed to do it is kind of irrelevant. The fact that you are allowed to stand there in public and yell curse words at me and insult me. Sure. It's not illegal. The word police aren't going to show up and, you know, clap handcuffs on you because you're saying bad things, but you're still being a jerk. It's still inappropriate. You're still violating the social contract. You're still somebody that nobody's going to want to spend time around. So the point of MIT is, or the point of the license in general there is to set the baseline. I am required to do the things that the license says, and people are permitted to use the project under the terms in the license, which for MIT are quite broad. That does not mean that's the limit of what I should do. That just means that's the limit of what I must do, which means, sure, if my options are a psychotic break or maintaining the software is going to go by the wayside, 
I'm not going to make that choice. I'm going to choose myself, my mental health and so on. But if the choice is, do I make this a Semver major or a Semver minor? It might possibly break people. That is a much simpler question to make a decision on that doesn't really require ethical constraints. That's a great answer. Thank you. And it is like thinking about, well, what should I give back as a nice person and as a good maintainer, as a good member of the open source community? How can I follow the norms that we have in open source culture of sharing and giving back and being excellent to each other in some way or another? I love that. You have hundreds of repos and you have a ton of repos which are in organizations which you help maintain. How do you decide to take on more work when you know that at any moment, every single one of them could have someone opening an issue saying, please help me. How do you deal with that? On some level, I have problems saying no, I guess. I try to be a lot more careful in the last couple of years about agreeing to become a maintainer on a new project. People do offer that to me. They're saying, hey, would you like to help me maintain this? And historically, the answer would be, yeah, of course. But I do try to manage my time somewhat. I, I have a family. I have children. I have my own life. When it comes to new projects, I don't worry too much about the future maintenance cost of it for the reasons I mentioned earlier. I just make a small enough scoped thing that after it's initially created, the work it requires is minimal. I try to build automation for handling. I use various tools for dependency updating and for automating the build matrix on CI so that when Node comes out with a new version every two weeks or a month, or it's just automatically included in my build matrix, things like that. But yeah, I mean, at, at some point, I'm mathematically going to have to stop taking on new projects. Hopefully, that won't be anytime soon. So... You've worked at some iconic companies. One that comes to mind is Airbnb. Airbnb, they do have some popular projects, one being Lottie, but I think the one that pretty much any front-end or back-end engineer knows about is the JavaScript style guide. What is your involvement with that? So it predated my time at Airbnb. I joined Airbnb in 2015. And I think it was created in 2013, maybe, by an engineer who was at Airbnb for seven, eight years, may even still be there. I'd have to check. I came in from having a lot of opinions about style and linting. At my previous job at Twitter, I'd had to help wrangle a code base so that it was written consistently. And so I had a lot of feelings tied up in that topic. And so I started taking a look at Airbnb's own style guide and seeing how it could be applied to the internal code bases and, and how the guide could be improved. And sort of in the same vein as those other projects, the engineer who'd created it and the other engineer who'd been managing it, who'd been doing a fine job, ended up saying, hey, why don't you just run it? You care about this stuff. You're doing a good job. Go for it. So essentially, I ran that entire style guide for the entire time I was at Airbnb. And, and at the moment, I, I still do. The way that style decisions were made was not largely me making unilateral decisions. Things were discussed internally. And the times that I did do things unilaterally, I looked at the way that the code inside Airbnb was written. And when it agreed with that, I just kind of put it in the style guide. The general philosophy I used was try to legislate everything that can be legislated as long as the linting rule wasn't too disruptive. And that's a very vague metric. So it contains a lot of rules that are configured relatively strictly. They follow Airbnb's internal style, at least at the time when I, at least as it was when I left in 2019, other than Airbnb's migration to TypeScript, which is not yet accounted for in the public style guide, I believe it still does match their internal coding styles. So you still work on it? Yeah. When I left Airbnb, it was 
with an understanding that I would continue to maintain the projects I'd been maintaining there. That has changed slightly since then. Many of the projects that I've maintained are no longer available for me to maintain, but there's still a few of them, including the JavaScript style guide, where I'm basically the only maintainer. There's no current employees that are really paying attention to it. What sort of advice would you give somebody maybe just starting in open source, looking to be built in a sustainable way, both for themselves and for the code that they're making? There's a couple angles that I could answer on. One is if they're interested in becoming more experienced, I can give some tips as to a path for that. So one is remember that code is not the only important thing, even just updating docs and like readmes and tutorials and things on projects is immensely valuable. And you don't have to have any expertise in programming necessarily to be able to do that. So there's lots of ways you can get familiar with a project without touching any code at all. I have a number of projects where people have submitted pull requests for fixes, but they didn't submit any regression tests. It is also very valuable. Like as has been pointed out, I have a lot of projects. I don't audit them systematically. Someone could go through any project and find open pull requests that need some changes and post a link on that pull request to the branch that contains those extra changes. They can help complete the pull request, in other words. So you can build off of the work of somebody else and be a co-contributor with potentially minimal effort. You can also pick a single project and go deep on it and try to become an expert in that thing. And usually the maintainer will recognize and understand that. And if you do a good job at it, they will probably ask you to be a contributor as well. You could also go broad and do a bunch of small changes in a bunch of different projects because different projects have different conventions and different maintainers have different personalities. And that gives you a different kind of expertise about how to contribute and work in the ecosystem. So there's kind of a lot of different ways you can level yourself up. As far as your question about making maintainership sustainable, that is a really personal question that I don't think I can answer for anybody. I think that just like everyone has to figure out their own work-life balance. For some people, 40 hours a week is just too much. And for some people, 60 hours a week is perfect. And for some people, they need 20 hours a week. And it doesn't matter. All of those are valid and correct. It's whatever works for you. So in the same way, if you're the type of person that wants to pay attention to the computer all day long, every day, that will inform how you manage your time. If you're the type of person who only wants to do that on the weekends or who only wants to do that once a month, that will also inform it. When you're maintaining a project, it's valuable to be able to communicate to the project's users how much you're going to support it. Like an SLA, I do this in my free time, so issues will be gotten to within six months. That's fine as long as you're clear about that. Similarly, if I am going to get to you in an hour, then probably don't even have to say anything. You'll just be gotten to very quickly. And so in the same way, I think that for oneself, knowing your own behavior patterns and what is a good fit for you and what works well for your life and your mental health and so on is probably the most effective tool to making sure that happens. Have you considered setting up a, I don't know, a counseling program for open source maintainers? We've done a lot of podcast episodes and we've talked to a lot of maintainers and God bless every one of them. You are uniquely balanced, if I can say that. Maybe that's not the right word, but it's been a refreshing discussion today because I feel that you really got your head on straight. You really have it figured out. A lot of the challenges that hit and burnout open source maintainers, you've figured it out, it seems. And I'm just, we were talking about, should I get involved in the conversation? And, and at the end of the day, 
there's nothing I can add to what you've said that will make it any better. I just want to put you on a platform as high as possible and just say, hey, this is how you do it. And so that's my input, but I'm going to go back to listening. I really enjoy listening to you talk. Thank you. I appreciate that. I got to follow up on that though. Could you share when it did all fall apart? Your person must have happened. What has been one of your challenges? I don't think I've had any singular burnout moment in the way that you're implying or or asking about. I think that I've had a number of close calls. One of the ones that will always stick in my head is I was working on a JavaScript proposal for TC39 for Global This, a standard way to reference the global in the language in browsers. It was window and node, it was global and there wasn't anything universal. And we wanted to have the name be global, but we shipped it and it broke a website. And so now we had to come up with a new name and bike shedding is hard and naming is hard. And so I was constrained by a lot of things. I ended up coming up with a list of possible candidates and it was about 20 things. And only one browser would agree to run telemetry to test out the names and see if they were going to break. And they would only do three of them or four. So I had to pick those arbitrarily, unilaterally, and get some data. And then the committee took that data and picked one of them, which was my recommendation from that subset, which was Global This. And about two months after that decision, which was... And I very intentionally did not broadcast the list of candidates because I knew that would invite a lot of public debate that wasn't going to be productive. And as a result, about two months after the decision was made, a prominent educator on Twitter noticed and disliked the name. And between one or two of people in that category ended up unintentionally, I hope, sticking all of their followers on me on this one issue on the proposal repo. And it was very turbulent and uncomfortable and vitriolic. And what avoided a burnout situation there was that I was able to work with another TC9 delegate named Yulia who works for Mozilla. And she was able to help me unmake the mistake that I had made. The mistake that I made was about how the change was communicated and that I didn't really talk about that. What she helped me do was write up a rationale document that was a list of shoulds and musts, constraints, right? Things that have to be true and things that should be true, but maybe not. And for each one, listing the names that were eliminated by that constraint. And by the time you got to the end of that document, and this proved true for most of the angry folks, by the time you get to the end of that document, you understand that there's really not any other choice. And people still don't have to like the choice. I don't like it. I wish I could have shipped global, but the web breaks a lot of stuff, right? So (laughs) the way it goes, but it very rapidly taught me the value of clearly communicating the motivations and rationales for a change early. I think that I was afraid of exactly what happened, that a bunch of people showed up and brigaded a thread with toxic behavior. And I want to try to write documents like this for contentious changes always now, because it proved so effective, not in silencing people, but in educating them exactly why we arrived at the decision we arrived at, which kind of takes a lot of the bite out of what they have to say. They still don't have to like it, but at least they aren't enraged about it. I mean, I'm personally insulted that you didn't choose the variable spoon man had it good instead of global this. It could have been a whole lot better. We could have had a better world. 
but we don't. We have a boring world. This is boring. So you failed there. And I'm really just. I will take that under advisement. <laughs> Thank you. Good. So I have a f- another question. You do seem to have it all together. And listening to you, and this is a very h- tough question. And I admit that to our listeners and you, and I'm sorry. You are so privileged. You are incredibly awesomely able to do what you love to do. And you seem to have the brain that allows you to sit and do GitHub stuff in your spare time. And you seem to be able to do it with work and with kids and in San Francisco and you're white and male and everything else. I also am. And I'm not saying this is a bad thing. I'm just saying that like, it's true, right? It's like de facto true about this. And part of what you've been able to do so far is because of that privilege. And so I'm curious, what are you doing to systematically change open source to make sure that while it's great for people like me and you to have the legs up that we've had, how can we make sure that other people also have the opportunities we have to work on open source if they want to? And I'm just curious, how are you working on that? What are you doing? It's all completely true. Like you said, I am a straight cisgender white male who grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area around where all these tech companies grew up. I am able to have constant internet and a computer I am able to have free time where I'm not working like a second or third or fourth job to pay for things, et cetera. So I definitely recognize the privilege that I have. And in no way should anyone without those things try to measure themselves up because the stakes aren't even. It's not a level playing field. So as to what I'm doing to try and help, no matter what I say to this question, there could always be more. And a listener might completely validly be able to say, to point out specific things I could do better. And there's probably a long list. So far, the things that I am doing that I'll talk about is many of my GitHub sponsors tiers, once you get above the bottom tier, I think, I kind of pay it forward. So I'm aiming for, I don't think I'm quite there yet, but I'm aiming for 50% of my incoming sponsorships on GitHub to turn around and go right back up to sponsor other people. And I am trying very hard to have the vast majority, like 90 plus percent of those sponsorships be to folks who may not have the same privileges as myself. That's not enough. And that's not the only thing, but that's something. I haven't yet gone around and stamped a code of conduct on everything, but I, at some point will do that. I follow one in spirit anyway. And I think as that applies to ist language, so like I'm sure many times I have used terms that aren't completely friendly to people in certain groups, ableist language or things like that. I still have a few repos left that have a master branch, things like that, that in themselves are small things, but that signal inclusiveness. And I think signaling that that is very valuable. And I shouldn't do that and feel like, great, now I'm done. I've helped. But I still think it's important to try to make that better. I spend a lot of time on IRC and Slack in various common programming communities, just kind of helping answering questions a lot. That's sort of, yeah, there's lots of ways like that to give back. I'm also involved in, there's a couple programs. There's one called Major League Hacking that does fellowships where their fellows will go out and work on open source projects and they'll have a company come and sponsor that session. And because I have so many projects, it's a nice target for them to to have fellows work with me. So I sort of mentor them and help them ramp up on specific projects. And a number of them have been able to make meaningful contributions that have been published and released. So kind of, I'm looking for things to do like that. So I think that if the same way as it's a struggle to figure out exactly how much time I have for my, for open source work or for exercising or spending time with family or all those things that trying to figure out how much time and effort I can spend on helping 
inclusiveness and equity in general is another struggle. So if, if someone does have an idea of something that's, especially if it's a low hanging fruit, right? If it's low effort, high impact, I'd be more than happy to try and do it. I think it's incredibly critical that folks who are privileged help pull everyone up, even if those people don't already have those advantages. Just like Spoonman had a good variable name for global this. I'm just incredibly disappointed with that answer. It's just really not level and not clear. And I just feel angry. No, that was actually, that was great. I was trying to trip you up to have some drama on the podcast, but it turns out it's just going to be a boring, just wonderful conversation with someone who knows what he's doing. So thank you so much. It's (laughs) like every answer is just like, (laughs) what? No, we're not trying to, awesome. we're not to, trying to <laughs> trip you. It's just like, how more perfect can you be? Jordan, where can people follow along with your perfectness? Are you on Twitter? Where can they see? <laughs> well, so to be clear, lots of room for me to grow. Just like anyone else. I am very much not perfect. He would say that. A long line of people <laughs> who will disagree that I'm perfect, but I, so you can certainly follow me on Twitter. You can check out my GitHub profile and follow me or any or all of my repositories. Those are the primary sources. I think I don't have like a website or a blog or anything. It's pretty much all on Twitter or GitHub. Who has time for that? (laughs) Thank you so much. We do need to wrap up quickly because this has been such a good conversation that I've actually lost track of time, which is rare. So thank you so much. Spotlight, part of the show where we talk about giving back to projects that are awesome by saying thank you and pointing out that they've helped us along the way. Eric Berry, what is your spotlight today? Yeah, contrary to what you're thinking, I'm actually going to spotlight a really cool tool that GitHub came up with called, or I think it's a GitHub project, but it's called the README Project. And the README Project is just a place where you can go to read about the maintainers who maintain open source projects that you're likely using. And each one of them have a story in here. Jordan has a story and there's a bunch of other people that we have talked to in the past, other people that we probably should talk to, but you get to it just by going to github.com slash readme. It's very well worth it. Thank you very much. Justin Dorfman. Okay. So there is this really funny woman on Twitter called Alexis Gay. Her handle is yay Alexis Gay. And she basically does really funny Bay Area tweets and videos and I just highly recommend you looking at the one she recently did. If you check the show notes, you'll see I'll link to the specific tweet that I'm talking about. Excellent. If that's the one I'm talking about, I think it's overheard in a park in San Francisco. Right. Right. Yes. Okay. Uh, did good. everyone so hear Google that? that, see that yet? Oh, it's, it's so good. So good. <laughs> so good. Alyssa Wright, what is your spotlight today? Three things service to mind with what's going on. One, I would like to acknowledge that this has been a year of COVID lockdown. I don't know if that's not exactly a spotlight, but it is present. Two, for some reason today, I am thankful to listservs and chat channels and just the ability to communicate and be with others in these virtual and online platforms. And then I started coming to America too yesterday, and I'm feeling pretty grateful for that as well. I got to check that out. Yeah. Yes. Thank you to all our healthcare providers for keeping us safe. My spotlight today is Daniel Pink's book, Drive, from which I got the three things that are necessary for meaning in work, which is autonomy, mastery, and purpose. And I actually didn't come up with that. Matt Zumwalt, a good friend of mine, told me about those. So go read his book, Drive, which I would like to read at some point. Jordan Harmon, what is your spotlight today? So I decided on something that's 
very on topic to the conversation we've been having. And I selected Tidelift. All open collective GitHub sponsors are, and Tidelift and Patreon and a few others are all doing great things by providing ways for individuals and companies to contribute back financially to the open source ecosystem. But I like Tidelift's model in particular because it surfaces transitive dependencies in a way that most of the others don't. So it's really easy for large projects, well-known things to get funding, Babel, Webpack, and so on, ESLint. But if, like myself, you write a package that is used by all those big things, but nobody actually knows the name of it, then you can't really get a piece of it. And the way Tidelift works, it kind of automatically flows the compensation through the dependency graph. And that's been really valuable. Awesome. Thank you so much. If you are interested in dependencies, everyone who's listening, we have a dependency working group at Sustain. This is the Sustain podcast. So sustainoss.org. And we'd love to talk about how to actually filter yourself down to other dependency things. That's just a shameless plug for the people who actually make this podcast happen. Jordan, it's been really great having you on the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on and presenting your perspective on being a maintainer of repositories and code and going above and beyond the open source as a license call. I really appreciated having you here. Looking forward to seeing where you grow and learn and move in this space. Thanks again. Thanks, Thanks for Jordan. Thank, Thank you. you. I should be here.